All right. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you, kids. Thank you guys for being here. It is a small group today. Um, I think we have a number of folks in Zoom. So hi to you who are in Zoom. I know that, um, yeah, we had several people call in sick this morning. <laughs> so I think that is part of the reality of this season, right? Of A, it's that time of year. And B, you know, I think coming out of this pandemic experience, we're going to just be super careful. And that just means that we're going to be flexible about, you know, who's well on any given week and try to figure out how to work together as our community just did two weeks ago when we were supposed to all have a retreat together and my family couldn't be there because we all had the stomach flu. So, um, so we move forward. And I am going to name today, this is our first time being back inside. When we were outside, presenters took off their masks. We're kind of in this fuzzy place of not really sure if that's cool or not at this point. Um, I'm not sure how everyone would feel about it, even if it technically might be allowed under current Berkeley regulations. So for today, I'm just going to keep it on. And we might be in dialogue about if that's something we feel like we need to keep doing for the people who are speaking and singing indoors. Um, but for today, just to err on the side of caution, I will be preaching with a mask on. It's not ideal, but we've, you know, we've gotten used to a lot of that's not ideal. So thank you for your um, openness to that. Are you able to hear me well? I know it's with the mic, it can be hard to really understand through the mask, but okay, good. So this fall, um, if you don't know me, I'll just name, I'm Leah. I'm glad you're here today. I'm the pastor here at Haven Berkeley and I'm super grateful to be with you this morning, whether you're online or in person. So um, this fall, we've been talking about the theme of friendship and in a series that I've been calling Friendship Matters. And as it so happened, around the same time that I announced this theme of for the fall teaching series, an NPR podcast that some of us follow, including myself, called Invisibilia, announced their own series on the topic of friendship. And it seems that after a season of prolonged social distancing and having a lot of our relational connections totally upended, maybe a lot of folks have been thinking about this theme of what it means to have friends, to be a friend. How do we think about friendship? So listening to the podcast kind of alongside our own series has been I, kind of interesting, at least to me. On the show, they've explored a number of stories around different facets of friendship, like we have in different ways though. Perhaps the episode that I appreciated the most just came out this week. And this episode was called Therapy with Friends. Therapy with Friends. And it explored what might happen when a pair of friends who've reached like a challenging point in their relationship are willing to try an intervention that I think is probably pretty unique for contemporary friendships in our culture to actually go to relationship therapy together. So think about it. What would that mean to you personally to like go to therapy, not on your own, not with your family member or romantic partner, which, you know, there's a lot of experience with that people have but with specifically a platonic friend to work on an issue that has arisen in the context of your friendship. How many of us would be willing to try that? And what do you think would happen 
if you did, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll, I'll ask you to think about it. So in this episode, the esteemed relationship therapist, Esther Perel, y'all know who she is? Woman has skills. Um, so Esther Perel hosts these two straight male friends for a friendship therapy session. And the result is re revelatory. And I would say ultimately pretty redemptive. These guys are in their mid twenties. They've been best friends since high school. But in recent years, they had felt themselves drifting apart. Some various life circumstances had come up. And for various reasons, they were both feeling some distance in the relationship and were wondering ultimately if the friendship could really be maintained. Yet through the gentle coaching of Esther Perel, the two men were able to recognize how each of them had been operating out of some insecurity in their relationship how each of them had potentially been withholding some things from the other in a desire to actually protect their friend, and how also how each of them deeply valued the other and were really distressed over the possibility of, of losing the friendship. And so as they shared, these two friends were able to enter into a more open and common understanding of their relationship and affirm how important it really was to each of them, how much they genuinely cared about each other and how they felt renewed hope and confidence in their friendship. In other words, they were able to at least begin a process that I think is all too uncommon in platonic friendship, relational repair. Now, to be fair, most of us will probably not have the opportunity to go to friendship therapy. It's a pretty rare thing at this point that's offered um, when we have some relational issue arise with a friend. And certainly it's unlikely that we would have the chance to do it with somebody like with the relational expertise of Esther Perel, but I don't think that's ultimately the point of what that story revealed. Truthfully, you don't need to sit with Esther Perel to do the work of repairing a relationship that's been challenged in some way. But for whatever reason, I think sitting with the hard work that is required for repair is rare for a lot of us in the area of friendship. Often when it comes to platonic friendship, at least in our society, it's much more common when friendships hit a rocky spot to just walk away. Maybe there's a big fight, we declare the friendship done, but I think it often happens in a more subtle way. Some offense takes place. And rather than pursuing some sort of reconciliation, rather than risking the hard conversation, we withdraw from the relationship. We stop calling. Perhaps we even ghost the friend in question. We don't return their texts. We're kind of just done. Maybe we experience that happening to us. We don't follow up to find out why. We kind of figure figure out kind of what happened and we let it go. Now, to be clear, sometimes in the case of toxic or abusive relationships, terminating the friendship is absolutely the right move, okay? I do not wanna suggest otherwise. Sometimes some friendships aren't really friendships and do need to end, right? But as the episode on friend therapy points to, I think many relationships in our lives do hold important value and the truth is every meaningful relationship between people will eventually have conflict. 
It's normal. It's inevitable. Conflict is not a bad thing. It is part of being in relationship with human beings. Anyone who's partnered or who has a sibling understands this, right? You have to learn to work through conflict. The trick is having the mechanism to work through it, through the conflicts and misunderstandings that come up in healthy ways so that we can have meaningful, lasting relationships that carry us through the challenges in life. And that means that sometimes even in our friendships, if we're gonna have long-term friendships, we're gonna need to be able to do the work of relational repair. So one of the things I appreciate most about the concept in the Jesus-centered faith uh, of God is that Jesus is somehow a unique embodiment of the divine. Something I appreciate about that is the idea that God is like not outside of the ways of human relating, but it's this idea that the divine has chosen to enter in to the messiness and complexity of human relationships and model within all that messiness how one might live into the kind of sacred love and connection that our tradition teaches is actually within God themselves, within God's own being. So Jesus didn't just talk about friendship and like talk, preach about how to act towards each other. He lived as a real human being with real friends and real friend challenges. And so there are friends who brought joy and meaning and love into his life. And there were friends, same friends, who let him down, who broke his heart. Friends for whom he also showed up to do work of repair. And so today, this is our last official teaching. We're about to launch into the season of Advent. So we're kind of wrapping up this series on friendship. No doubt we're going to have more conversations around relationships and how we do them well, because that's really, I think, the core of what we're trying to build here is a set of relationships that we can live alongside each other in spirituality. But as we end this particular look at friendship, I thought it would be nice to kind of end here, looking at a story from the life of Jesus about how friendship can be approached after there's been harm in the relationship. It's a story from the life of Jesus about friendship repair. So let me give you a little bit of a setup for the story. We're gonna look at a unique little anecdote that only appears in one of the four gospels. We find it in what seems to be kind of an epilogue to the gospel of John. Jesus has been killed. Three days later, John says he begins appearing to his followers. He saw Mary Magdalene in the garden. And then he came a couple of times to be present with like in the upper room with this group of his closest disciples. And then John tells us about one more encounter. And the story starts with Simon Peter inviting a group of his friends who like him were fellow fishermen before they ever met Jesus. He invites these fishermen with him to return to the water. And they go back to their boats for an evening fish and they fish all night, but they don't catch anything. And then in the morning, they're heading back to the shore when what looks to be a stranger, a person on the shore they don't recognize, calls to them from the shore 
and encourages them to put their nets out on the right side of the boat and they follow the stranger's advice. And sure enough, their nets are miraculously filled to the brim. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story in John 21, beginning with verse seven. I will read it for you. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Disciple whom Jesus loved is generally understood to be John, the author himself, okay? So John said to G Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. End of story. So here we have this unique kind of strange little story, a story ultimately that it seems to be is about this relationship between Peter and Jesus. So why is it here? What did John think was so important about this episode that he needed it to be in the epilogue of his gospel? Well, I think it might be helpful to answer that question, to think about the world in which this story emerged and who this character Peter was in that world. Because in the early church, Peter would have been one of the most visible leaders. He and the apostle Paul were both really heavily involved in like starting spiritual communities, nurturing them, writing letters that were getting circulated in all these communities. Of these two, Peter's the, mo the one who's known to have known Jesus personally when Jesus lived on the earth. And so he's the one from the inner circle 
that hung out with Jesus, that has the most senior leadership in the whole early church, in this whole band, this whole movement, the community in which these gospels are written in and begin to be circulated, he's already a known leader. Does that make sense? Long before John wrote this gospel, Peter would have been well known as the leader of the community or as a leader in it. But the last place we see Peter in John's gospel before this story, he does not look like much of a spiritual leader. Three chapters before, John tells the story of Jesus being arrested. His friend Peter grabs a sword, cuts off the ear of one of the guards trying to arrest Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter for it and is carried away. And then a few verses later, we see Peter standing by a charcoal fire, warming himself in the night as the person he's been following has been carried away for trial. And others in the fire recognize Peter as being a friend of Jesus's and Peter denies it. And throughout the night, two others ask him on two different occasions about their connection, his connection to Jesus. And again, each time he deflects and denies that he's known him. And after the third denial, the cock crows, Peter remembers that Jesus had specifically predicted this like hours earlier, that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed. And even having heard that, he had done it all just the same, just as Jesus had named that he would. That's the last time we've seen Peter in this gospel. So how does someone who's let Jesus down so brutally go from that kind of disappointment and betrayal to leading the community that is founded in his name, right? That can only happen because there's some sort of repair, some moment of repair. And that is why I think John wants us to hear this story. So what does this strange little anecdote tell us about relational repair? Well, I'm just going to pull out a few things that I think might actually be useful, not just for Jesus and Peter, but for us to note when we think about repair in our friendships or other relationships going forward. And the first one is this. Repair includes leaning into shared connection over personal power. Okay, that's a kind of a dense one. So I'm going to say it again. Repair includes leaning into shared connection over personal power. There's something that Peter demonstrates here that I think is really indicative of the character we kind of see in him throughout the scriptures. Peter's a very impulsive guy. He like wears his heart on his sleeve and he just literally jumps into things, okay? So for better or for worse, you do know where he stands, which I do appreciate about Peter. Because, and in this moment, when he realizes it's Jesus that's there on the shore, he acts without hesitation. He does not wait for the boat to dock, even though they're like a hundred yards from shore. No, he just like jumps in the water and starts swimming to Jesus. Like he wants to go for Jesus immediately. He wants to be reconnected. He probably feels remorseful for what he's done. And he's seen Jesus a couple of times at this point in these like group appearances, he and the other 
disciples are there. Jesus appears, but he hasn't had the one-on-one. He hasn't had the moment to like grab Jesus aside and be like, dude, oh, right. That hasn't happened. And so when he sees it's Jesus here without thinking, he just like puts logic and pride aside and jumps in the water and goes after him. And that kind of moment, when we encounter someone we have wronged, it doesn't often go that way, I would say. Many of us actually, I think, have a hard time leaning into the vulnerability of connecting to someone that we know we love, but we have hurt, right? That's a hard thing to do. It's a painful place to be, to have to acknowledge our own brokenness before someone we care for, someone we respect, someone we love. And not all of us can do it. I think often the easier thing is to distance ourselves, to maintain a sense, I would say, of personal power through disconnection. We might justify to ourselves why our actions were necessary or made sense. We might, to wrestle with our mistakes, and our need for the other can make us feel a bit weak. And I would offer, this can be particularly true for men in our patriarchal culture. This was a little insight I picked up from this podcast episode that I thought, huh, I think that's really deep. So I'm gonna share this. You can, maybe, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. But on this podcast episode with these two male friends, Esther Perel shared an insight from a therapist friend of hers, a a male therapist named Terry Reel. And Dr. Reel theorizes that under patriarchy, men can often either feel powerful or connected, but they can't necessarily have both at the same time. I think that's a deep thought. So I'm going to say it again. Think about this with me. You can agree, you cannot, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Dr. Real theorizes that under patriarchy, men can often either feel powerful or connected, but they can't necessarily have both at the same time. If there's truth to this, I think it does have really profound implications for all of our capacities to experience deep connection. Systems of patriarchy may socialize men to believe that to be connected to others means surrendering power, means adopting a sense of powerlessness. But that's only part of the story, right? I would offer that patriarchy defines power in a particular way, power as personal agency, power as domination the capacity to make your own choices, damn the consequences, impose your will on another or on the world around you. But is that the only kind of power? There's another kind of power that isn't about being strong enough to be above something, about exerting control over it, but about being in the midst of something bigger than yourself, the power of being included accepted, loved, and to be one who includes, accepts, loves. The power of deep relational connection. Repair for Peter and Jesus 
begins with each of them showing a willingness to connect and a desire to lean into that connection, that vulnerable place of sharing power, instead of standing in the distance place of holding on to personal power. Does that make sense? Now there's a parallel story that I think might highlight it a little bit more when I'm trying to name that I've been thinking about this week that runs alongside Peter's denials of Jesus and the subsequent repair. Because Peter, of course, is not the only close friend of Jesus who lets him down, right? The last night Jesus was with his closest friends, he predicted two letdowns, two friendship failures, two betrayals. Judas would sell him out to those who wanted to kill him, and Peter would deny him. And of course, both of those things came to pass, but days later, only one relationship is being repaired. Now, often history paints events in broad strokes and makes characters, humans, into caricatures. So Peter becomes a hero and Judas a villain. Peter, the man of God, Judas in league with the devil. But is it really that black and white? Perhaps part of the tragic reality of this story is that shame and its capacity to isolate us from connection is its own kind of destructive power. Because in the wake of the betrayal, Judas took his own life. Perhaps his remorse didn't lead him to connection with others, but it isolated him to confess to the community around him how deeply he had wounded all of them was unbearable. That makes sense. He didn't feel like he could lean in to connection with all of these brothers he had just let down. And so the tragedy of how patriarchy can cause men to feel forced to choose personal power over connection played out in a devastating way, rather than be vulnerable to those around him, rather than face their justifiable anger and hurt, but also the possibility of repair. Judas took matters into his own hands. A final act of personal power with tragic consequences. What would have happened if Judas had not cut himself off from the possibility of repair. That's kind of a head scratcher, right? That's a deep question. What would have happened if Judas had not removed the possibility of repair? What would his story have been? Jesus offered repair to Peter. He offered repair to Saul, who became Paul, a man who, when they encountered each other, was persecuting the followers of Jesus and trying to round them up and kill them all? Is there any reason to believe that this same Jesus would not also have granted Judas the opportunity for restoration if he had been open to the connection in the wake of relational harm? I don't think so in the character of Jesus. I think this would have been a different story. Repair includes leaning into shared connection over personal power. 
That brings me to the second thing we see in this story. Repair includes taking responsibility for past wrongs, as well as the extension of forgiveness. While Jesus and Peter never speak explicitly about what had happened the night that Jesus was captured and tried, there are ways in which the story plays out that make it clear that addressing those denials is what this exchange is about. First, we see the setting. John uses the term charcoal fire, fire of burning coals, two times in his whole gospel, when Peter denies Jesus and here. The setting cannot be a coincidence. It's an opportunity for the audience, as well as Jesus and Peter, to connect these two moments. The kinesthetic experience of bringing Peter back to the fire, allowing him to feel that same warmth, smell the same charcoal, returning Peter to the setting of the original harm is an invitation for Peter to do something different. It's the invitation to repair. And then there's the repetition. Three times Jesus asked Peter some version of the same question and gets essentially the same answer. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Three denials by Peter met by three invitations to declare his love and commitment to Jesus. By the third time, Peter feels hurt by the question, but I think that hurt is itself an opportunity to feel the injury he has inflicted, to sit with it, not to distance himself from it, not to deflect it, to own it. And Peter does accept that invitation. Even in his hurt, he doesn't deflect. He doesn't get defensive. He stays with the feelings. Once again, declares, even with greater openness and vulnerability, Lord, you know all things. You know, I love you. This, I think, is Peter's way of taking responsibility for the way he has wronged Jesus. And for Jesus's part, he doesn't hold on to offense. Each admission of love comes with a command, a command to live into an identity that Jesus had previously called Peter into and spoken over him. We, we hear this shepherd idea, right? This shepherd metaphor. It's the role of leader and nurturer in the community he feels he has cultivated. So he says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. It's as if he's saying, if you love me, which I know you do, Peter. Now care for those I care for in my absence. Jesus is entrusting Peter with the care of the community he loves. He's calling him not to a domineering patriarchal form of leadership and power. He's calling him to nurture the same way he has nurtured, the same way he is nurturing Peter right now. This is a loving act of forgiveness and restoration. In some ways, I would find it more satisfying as a teacher, as a parent, if Peter would have like used the words, I'm sorry for denying you three times, Jesus, and Jesus would have said, 
I know, I forgive you. There's like a reason that we teach that pattern to our kids and, and that most relationship therapists will talk about the, the huge importance of a good apology and also the granting of grace and forgiveness in order to repair relational harm. It's a core step. But even though these ancient men don't use those words, I think the sentiments behind them are being enacted. Peter is owning in his way his wrong and Jesus is releasing him from it and inviting him into restoration. And that finally brings me to the last component of friendship, repair, that I think this story demonstrates. Repair includes a shared vision of the future. Repair includes a shared vision of the future. So in her conversation with those two young men, once the friends recognized and were able to articulate like how important this friendship was to them, Esther Perel encouraged the guys to imagine together how they could show up in a consistent way for one another going forward. She suggested a ritual. Every eight weeks, they commit to doing something together, attending a football game, going on a hike, whatever it is that they enjoyed doing and that connected them. She suggested establishing that ritual so that it became like a pillar of their life that they could plan around. This is not moving. Every eight weeks, we're having friendship time. And so even as romantic partners, eventually family might come onto the scene, this was here. One of the young men expressed how he generally is pretty nervous about making long-term commitments, but he felt open to what she was suggesting. This is not a long-term commitment, Dr. Perel responded. This is a reliable gift. It's not a long-term commitment. This is a reliable gift. It is a gift to know your friend whom you love is gonna be there on a regular basis, that you are going to show up for each other in a meaningful way. That is what Esther Perel was inviting these men into. And that is what they were excited to begin to imagine together by the end of the conversation. They weren't sure if they'd even have a friendship anymore. And by the end, they're talking about this reliable gift, the reliable gift of a future in one another's presence. Any relationship that's worth repair is also worth imagining together a shared vision of the future. What do we hope for together? How do we look ahead at what this relationship can yield? I mean, truthfully, the very act of repair is a hopeful act. It is demonstrating that the relationship is worth trying to mend because it has a future, it could. It also is naming that each person in the relationship has a future and each of them deserves to face that future with wholeness and healing, right? So in this case, there is a change of seasons here. Jesus isn't gonna be hanging around in the same way he was before. He's not back in that way. He's not inviting Peter to resume sharing meals and the long walks between towns and praying together in the same way. There's been a change of season of life. Their relationship isn't going to be the same in this season as it was before, but that doesn't mean that they can't look forward together. 
by calling Peter to take Jesus's place as leader, as a good shepherd, in a sense, acting on his behalf. Jesus himself is affirming his trust in Peter to embody Jesus's kind of leadership, as we have named, but he's also affirming like Jesus's commitment to be present with him in spirit, even if he isn't in body, right? I think the ominous word Jesus speaks to Peter about the end of his life, which is its own like kind of weird thing, this like premonition about how he's going to die. I think that's actually part of the same practice. When he names how Peter will be led to where he doesn't want to go, describing the death of a martyr, this too is an encouragement that even in the most harrowing moments of Peter's earthly life, he will not be alone. He will be in solidarity with Jesus. Perhaps these words are meant to give him courage and hope, even through the challenges that are to come, even in forecasting a trial to come, Jesus is giving Peter the reliable gift of his presence to look forward to. Jesus will be there with him, leading him still, his shepherd to the end. And so Jesus affirms this in his final words to Peter, follow me. Two weekends ago, over 30 folks in this community gathered in the retreat at a retreat center in the woods of Sonoma for a time of reconnection with one another and with God. As you probably all know, as we mentioned before, uh, for the first time in Haven's whole history over the last seven years, I was unexpectedly not able to be there. And my family and I were homesick, but the retreat went on as scheduled. And from what I understand, the unusual circumstance of our absence actually made space for perhaps a unique opportunity for discovery. Honestly, my greatest hope for this retreat was that it would give folks in our community a sense of haven as a collective again in a way that's been really hard to hold on to over the last couple of pandemic years. It's been hard to feel like any kind of group when we've been forced to do so much distancing and are still struggling with that now. It's been hard to remember what it feels like to be in real connection with others or sense how God might be in the midst of us. But at the retreat, my understanding is that those who were there did experience a fresh sense of joy, being together and solidarity in one another's presence. They weren't there ultimately to support me and my vision. They were there for one another. The passage that was studied that weekend was about the good shepherd, how we all are like sheep brought together from disparate places to be one flock cared for by one good shepherd who ultimately is not me, it's not Jeannie or any of us, but Jesus. And this is what I believe Jesus intended, to call all of us into healing and connection that renounces the false choices of patriarchy and leans into the power that comes from being in loving community. And you can't have ongoing loving community without also a commitment to one another to repair when harm is done. And so friends, as we end this series on friendship, I just wanna invite us 
to imagining a shared vision of the future together. And to that work, as we do the work of repairing this community in the wake of trauma, how might we share a vision of the future together? What would it look like for our little haven not only to value friendship with each other and with others in our lives in a deep way, but also to live into this part, this as part of that reliable gift that the divine is calling us to embody with each other and with others in our lives, the commitment to repair. What if rather than withdraw when we experience inevitable injury or challenge in our friendships, we were able to stay connected, to take responsibility for the ways we may have wronged our friends, to grant forgiveness the ways we've been wronged, and to imagine a shared vision of the future together. How might that enrich all of our relationships? How might it impact not only this little haven community, but the community around us? How might that be part of what makes this a safe, diverse, Jesus-centered place? How might it help us truly be a haven for each other? and others we encounter. Friends, I believe this is the work we're called to in this season of healing. The retreat was a beautiful step in the rebuilding of community and there will be more steps to come and I'm excited for them. And some of them will probably at some point include the need to speak uncomfortable truths and grant grace to one another with a desire to repair. My hope and prayer is that as we lean into that hope for connection with one another, we will experience the presence of the one who modeled that grace and nurturing care so well. And we will find ourselves gifted with lasting friendship. Amen. Amen.